0: You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, episode 23. Hey everyone, this is Brian, Liesl's husband, and she asked me to step in because she is not feeling well and barely has a voice, so bear with me on this. Uh, This is my first podcast introduction. This week is all about VBACs, so if you're planning a VBAC in the future, this is going to be a great episode to listen to. Liesl's talking to Julie and Megan from the VBAC Link. The VBAC Link's mission is to make birth after cesarean better by providing education, support, and a community of like-minded people. Organized by Julie and Megan, VBAC moms, doulas, educators, and doula trainers, they've supported over 700 women on their individual VBAC journeys and have a community of thousands of women all over the world. Julie and Megan touched on a lot of the questions that you sent Liesl about VBACs, such as finding a VBAC-friendly provider, common misconceptions, and dispelling myths like, my baby's too big for my pelvis. It's a great episode, so let's jump right into it. You're
1: listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where we firmly believe in the power of education when it comes to giving birth. Tune in each week as we dive into pregnancy-related topics, expert interviews, and a variety of birth stories. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see MommyLaborNurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now, here's your host, educator, registered nurse, and fellow
2: mom, Liesl Teen.
3: Hi, Julie and Megan. We have two guests here today. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here today. We are so excited. (laughs) Yay. Awesome. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of everything that you guys do at the VBAC link. And it's so funny that I haven't like I didn't know, I can't remember who who told me about you guys. But when I found your page, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so. It's like somebody who's like just, ex, you know, just V Like I, I yes. refer you guys to. I when when anybody DMs me or um, comments or anything, I always I always send them to you guys. So I just big fan. Love your love your Instagram. Love everything that you guys do. So. Thank you for being here. You. Can you start? Do you, it doesn't matter who starts, but I want st- to um, just start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself and your family. Julie, if you want to go first, Megan, you can go first. It don't matter.
2: <laughs> Perfect. Um, all right. So I'm Julie Francom, Yeah. and I have four kids under the age of seven. I had four babies in less than five years. Woohoo! And- I used to say it's not that crazy as it sounds, but now it is definitely as crazy as it sounds
4: I at my house. You. <laughs>
2: um, my first was a C-section. Um, I was induced at 36 weeks due to preeclampsia, mm-hmm. and um, my body just wasn't ready, and I ended up with a cesarean. And then I went on to have three vaginal births at awesome. home. Um, with a uh, certified professional midwife who had done like over a thousand births. And so, um, I know like home birth is kind of scary for some people, but when, um, you have the right professional and you have the right safeguards in place and an emergency backup plan, um, it's just as safe as hospital birth in, in, especially in some studies that have come out. But before I go off on that tangent, um, it's really, is a, a preference sensitive decision as far as where you birth, but,
3: um, I, they agree. Were and I just, think it's all, uh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. I think it's, no, go ahead. I always say, cause I'm deaf. There, there are nurses, there are providers, there are people out there who are very anti, um, home birth. And I'm certainly not that. I, I mean, my, my whole thing is I, f- I feel like it's better it's about where you feel more most comfortable, right? Yeah. I I felt most comfortable, me personally. I felt most most comfortable giving birth at a hospital, and that's mainly due because I work at a hospital, right? I'm really, really, really comfortable there. Um, right. But yeah, if that's you and you feel much more comfortable, you've been educated. You're not trying to do it completely completely by yourself. I'm certainly not a fan of super like unassisted birth, like no medical provider. Yeah. (laughs) Good, good. Okay. We can get that out of the way. So yeah, I'm certainly not a fan of that. I try to, that's the only thing that I'm very anti of um, because that, that to me, just seems very, very, very dangerous. And, you know, there's you can definitely find a provider that is supportive of your home birth. If you want to, if you want to have a home birth. So yeah, we are pro home birth here. You're, you're fine. <laughs> so sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt you, but just, yeah, no, go no, ahead. Totally fine. <laughs> um, I just wanted to clarify,
2: cause sometimes like people, um, well, we've both Megan and I um, have faced a lot of kickback about our birth choices. Cause yeah. VBAC sometimes is, is a really taboo thing for people. So right. Um, I had my three backs safely at home. Um, they were all very incredible, empowering and healing experiences. Um, I don't even think I should share any really details about my birth story because I'll take up this whole show. <laughs> but, I hear, yeah. um, I do want to say that, um, Megan and I's birth stories can both be found on our podcast, which is called the Back link. Cool. The feedback link podcast, you can find it on any major podcast app or on our website. Um, and we're episodes number two and three. And so cool. if you want to hear all the fun details about how everything went down, um, you can go and listen to those. But um, a fun fact, um, Megan and I had the same doctor for our cesareans oh, nice. and we didn't even know each other at the time. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's so I guess where, funny. where mm-hmm. I forget,
3: where are you guys, where are you guys located? We're in Salt Lake Utah. city, Utah. Utah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Salt Lake city area. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so you didn't even know each other and you had like the same yeah. provider. That's kind of cool. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So
2: it was kind of fun, but, um, not kind of fun. Okay. So our C-sections <laughs> were probably, I mean, may have been able to be avoided. Yeah. As, um, about, it's estimated about half of the cesareans that happened in the United States. Um, could have been avoided at some point or another, Mm -hmm. but, um, well, we can talk about that a little bit later if we want to, but, um, but we were with a doctor that had a very high cesarean rate that we didn't know. And the nurses actually called him the quilter, like in the operating room because of his stitching, how it was very beautiful stitching. Yeah, Um, every nurse would always tell me, when they came in to like do their checks and things like that oh his stitching is always so beautiful which is
3: great but also like do you really want to be like, I don't want to hear that. that right now like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah
2: and so you know and 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 he's super old school and yeah. and not bashing doctors at all because we we love OBGYNs we love yeah. nurses we love all we love midwives um but it was not a very good experience Um, and so to go on and have the birth that I wanted, um, on my own terms was really just an incredibly healing experience. Um, and we faced a lot of kickback and opposition along the way, but, um, and I'm going to let Megan talk here in just a second, I promise, but you know, along the way, figuring out all of the things and learning all the information was kind of hard and differentiating what's true and false and what's evidence-based and what's not. And dealing with, um, my in-laws having taking my husband out to lunch when I was 36 weeks pregnant to talk him into talking me out of having, um, the birth that I wanted and got attacked in a Facebook group. And I mean, there's just a lot of opposition along the way for VBAC. Yeah. And we live in a, in one of the most, um, supportive States for VBAC. I mean, cool. it's not, it's still got lots of work to do, but, yeah. um, that's why we started the VBack link is because we wanted to make it easier for people to find information that they could trust, mm-hmm. um, provided by people who get it, like people who have been there. And yeah. just in case you didn't know, that's me and Megan. Cool. Cool. <laughs> and so that's why we started this thing. But Megan, why don't you, Share your your um info now, yeah yeah, <laughs> so Go right my, ahead. <laughs> thank you. My name is
1: Megan Heaton, and um I've been a doula for like five and a half years and kind of just was stemmed um into doula or doula work kind of stemmed off of my two previous births. my first and second were both cesareans um, yeah. completely unavoidable really. To to the point that we were at was unavoidable. I have no idea where it would have gone. But, um, and I was like, you know what? I just want people to know options. I want people to feel supported because I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually had a labor and delivery nurse with my second who was mind-blowing amazing. Absolutely adored her. Loved her. Even wrote the um, hospital a letter about her after because I really wanted them to know how much she stood out in my birth experience. Um, and then unfortunately I, I still ended up in a cesarean, but um, became a doula, love birth. Um, and it's just been an amazing journey. I have a husband and three kids mm-hmm. um, and they are just crazy and keep me busy, which is really <laughs> fun. Yeah. Um, so it's awesome, but I'm really grateful to my husband who supports what I do because the job that I do would not be possible without him. Um, so Thank awesome. you. Preach. Yeah. Shout, shout out, out to all our husbands. Shout out to the p-
3: supportive partners that we have yeah. because <laughs> all around. Yeah, like I could. I mean, I couldn't. Uh, it there would be so impossible. Many, yes, me. there are so many things that I could not have done if it wasn't mm-hmm. for him. So I love you, babe. Yes. <laughs> shout out to our partners. <laughs> yes. Yes, I just I love him so much, and I'm
1: <laughs> so grateful for him. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I became um, a doula and uh, kind of in love with the VBAC world because of my third, I definitely wanted a VBAC. I knew that I wanted a different experience. My cesareans weren't necessarily bad or traumatic. Yeah. Um, and, th- but they weren't desired. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Uh, I still, I still lacked something and I really wanted what I lacked. And so, um, with a lot of research and, and, and education and, through a lot of abuse uh, through Facebook and, and things like that. Like Julie mentioned, um, I ultimately decided that I did want to be back after two cesareans mm-hmm. and, um, I did have a VBAC after two cesareans and it was an amazing, beautiful, very long experience, but it was awesome. <laughs> um, so and so then even then my, for my passion, you know, for VBAC grew even more. Um, and so that's obviously where we landed here, Julie. Yeah kind of had this idea and I was like, let's do it. And so here we are. And it's just been an awesome journey doing it. So (laughs) I have loved it. So, and thank you again for having us on. Yeah. No, happy to to have you
3: guys. No, happy to have you guys. And I, I, it's, I was thinking when you were talking to, I think that's how a lot of these projects, you know, the, these spaces kind of start that you have a really great experience or you have a really crappy experience. experience, Mm, And you say, I get this passion that I want to just help people avoid this, or I want to help people have this experience because I had this experience. And yeah, that's part of the reason I started my whole thing is because I had such a great, you know, a great birth experience and I felt so supportive and I had the knowledge as a labor delivery nurse to share, you know, with people about birth. And I just wanted everybody to have, you know, Amazing, amazing bursts, and not to come away from it, uh, not to go into it—you know—scared and anxious and super, you know, like yeah, dreading, yeah. Uh, you know, what they're going into. I want them to go in, it, go into it informed and educated, and like, mm-hmm. you know, like they can conquer the world, kind of thing. And I th- and I think that's—I think we're on the same page in terms of that. Um, right. so yeah, but thank you guys for being here. I know we did your birth stories kind of shortly, which was, which is fine. Um, I definitely wanted everybody to know that you guys both did have VBACs and they were yes. both at home <laughs> and what, you know, Megan, you, yours was after two, which is, uh, you know, somewhat, you know, not as heard of anymore. I, re- I actually recently, right. I forgot to say this when I was on y'all's, birth, y'all's podcast, <laughs> but I did have, Um, an episode, if you, I don't, if you guys haven't listened to it, it's three, three episodes. I don't know what episode number it was, but it was a few episodes ago. I had a feedback after two, um, Carly and she shared her experience and she just, it was a wonderful story. Like she just was, it it was, and it was two failure to progress. You know, she got to, um, 10 centimeters and she was pushing and then, you know, she ended up having a C-section with both of them. And then she had. And then she succeeded the next time. And, you know, she was really gung-ho on finding a provider that supported her, you know, finding a different provider that supported her the next go-around and she was able to do it. So, yeah, I love the passion. Love it. Um, But... Yes, we're, I'm having you guys on today because I know that you specialize in VBACs and you want everybody who's trying to have a VBAC to know as much as they can about having a VBAC as they can. Yeah. So we have some questions here that some of them I've come up with for my own head. Some of them have been just popular questions that I get from uh, my viewers. So we're just going to kind of go through these, um, You know, it doesn't matter who answers them or if you both want to comment or whatever. You you guys can just kind of go for it. So let's jump right into the first question. The first one is, what are some of the first things that I can do if I am interested in having a VBAC?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, The first, some of the first things, if you're interested in a VBAC, I feel like um, one is actually obtaining your own operative report report. Mm-hmm. because you, then you can have a better understanding of what really did happen. Cause a lot of the times providers will say, Oh, this is what happened, but then there's more or, or they, they say something good different point. in the operative report. Good and point. so I think it's really a good idea to start right there. What happened? Yeah. What really happened? Um, and then of course finding a supportive provider, um, and finding your support in general. Um, supportive providers can truly make and break a situation in all types of breathing situations. Yep. Um, so it's really important to find that provider and don't be scared to interview many. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And don't be scared to change if you think one's right and then yes. mid-
2: you you're realizing maybe it's not a right fit.
3: Even if you're at 36 weeks, you can still
2: (laughs) even in labor. Yes. Had a client walk out of a hospital once and go to a different one.
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's important to feel that support. You deserve it. Um, and so really finding that support system, obviously we are doulas, so we advocate for doulas, um, and doulas can help a ton with that education, the guidance, and things like that, um, and then really just armoring up with education. So yes. you've got your support, and then your and your education, and um, they're so powerful. They're really powerful. So finding the education, um, listening to podcast stories, reading blogs, taking um, VBAC courses like the one we offer, the one you mm-hmm. offer. You've got a VBack um, section. It's just mm-hmm. really, really important because although all the providers out there, they mean well. They're not always up to evidence based. Yeah. And so, if you can really find out that information, then it also will help you have a more cohesive relationship with your provider because you guys can have a real educated discussion instead of, well, I want this and I want this and you have to do this. It's like, right. this is really important to me. Is this something you support and how do you do that? Yeah. You know
3: what I mean? Absolutely. Like,
1: this is what evidence says what is your take on it? And so really you can, I don't know, I just, it will create a really nice feel for the day you're in
2: labor. Yeah. Hey, perfect. I agree. Um, I agree with that. I think finding your support is very, very important. So in provider, in a doula, in um, your family, your friends, find out who's safe to talk to and who's going to tell you that you're (laughs) that. I don't know. I'm not going to say anything <laughs> negative, but who's not, no, who's fine. not as supportive. I mean, we both, Megan and I have friends who choose repeat cesarean and we just cannot talk about birth with our, mm-hmm. some of our closest friends because of that. And mm-hmm. so find people that will support you. And, um, that's one of the reasons why we created our community on Facebook. Um, it's called the VBAC link community. Um, it's super supportive. We kick out the trolls at the first sign of any trollage and, (laughs) and that, that's a really important thing because that's going to really help with the confidence factor going into your birth. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because I mean, that's, a whole part of it is being confident and being empowered and knowing, knowing in your mind that I can do this, you know, that's, that's a huge, huge part. Well, thank you. Well, that was a, that was very good. I like the point about the operative report too, because I never, I never would have thought to tell someone to do that, but that makes so much sense, right? Because yeah. there's probably so much misconception Um and maybe you thought that you had a, C- a c-section because of XYZ, but maybe you didn't. Maybe it was really this and you were in labor and you know you it wasn't clear to you what your provider was telling you or what was going on. you know, so that's a very, very good point. and that is accessible. It's not like you have to go yep. through you know all of these steps to get a hold of your medical records. You might have to make, one phone call or, you know, Mm -hmm. email one person or sign something or, you know, whatnot, but it's not like you have to go through all of these hoops to obtain an operative report. So yeah, you
1: just just need to go to your medical records and request it.
2: Yeah. That's all you have to do. Mm -hmm. Super easy. Well, and I really like that. It's kind of an important thing because uh, information is power is kind of a cliche thing to say, but it's so true because um, a lot of people are told they're cesareans for one reason and their operative report says something different. And what is in your operative report is what your provider is going to see and look at when they're evaluating whether or not you're a good candidate for a VBAC so, if you, like me, were told that your baby 's heart rate wasn 't doing well, and you have to have a C section, but your operative report says your pelvis is too small, and mm-hmm. you were failure to progress
4: mm-hmm.
2: that that is what my operative report says, and it said nothing about fetal heart tones, mm-hmm. then your next provider is going to see, "Oh, her pelvis is too small, and she didn 't even dilate past a four, mm-hmm. so she 's probably a good not a good candidate for Vbac. Even though, I mean, that's not really true. Failure to progress is thrown around a lot more than it should be according to the guidelines. And um, sometimes you're just not really given a chance. Not only that, but like I was induced early. Like there's so many things, but what is in your operative report is the only thing your next provider is going to be able to reference. Um, And so finding out what's in that will keep you from being surprised when you are meeting with prospective providers
3: yeah very very good points cool all right well let's get into the next question so we talked about this in the first question about um finding a provider so the next one and and how important that is and the next one is just how do i go about finding a vbac friendly provider is there even a best way there is a best way um
2: (laughs) It's in some parts of the country it can be really tricky. Megan and I talk a lot about this um, because in Utah it's so easy for us to say oh yeah, so and so in this county, so and so in that county, yeah. here's for yeah. home birth, here's for hospital birth. But it, there are some places like the deep south, like well yeah. you're not that far from there, but like Alabama and Georgia right. and, and and Florida is awful and mm-hmm. um tennis parts of Tennessee like it's really hard to find a a provider that is truly support of vbac. And so I would say first of all ask don't don't be afraid to go and interview and talk to as many providers as you can. Yes. Megan Megan interviewed 12 providers. Nice. 8 of them told her she would never get a baby through her pelvis. Oh. 4 of them told her they would let her try. They let me try. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Until she found a supportive one and then she even switched from a supportive provider to another supportive provider. Yeah. Because I, not that that supportive provider was bad, but she just didn't quite feel right. Yeah. Something in her intuition was telling her to switch and she did. And so, um, keep looking at, join your local ICANN group, Mm ICANN-online.org. Um, join that group. They'll probably have very good recommendations for you you can ask in our VBAC link community. We also have a blog all about how, um, how to tell if your provider's VBAC supportive um, on our website, the blog. Um, but kind and we teach about it extensively in our courses. We talk about um, what makes a provider supportive, what makes them tolerant, how to handle birthing with a provider that is less supportive and um, how, how to recognize the bait and switch. What are some questions to ask to see if your provider is going to change their mind yeah. in your third, Trimester, but like the main things you want to do is ask open ended questions. Don't just say, Hey, I want to be back, I don't want to be medicated, I want to push my baby out in whatever position I want. You cool with that? Right. And then the, any <laughs> provider can say, Sure, you can have whatever, no birth you problem. Want. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and um, that's that's the literal words that my provider used with me. You could have whatever type of birth you want. Aww. Well, it didn't go that way, yeah. um, yeah. which you know is up up for, up for debate but right. um but any provider can agree to anything that you tell them but if you ask them open ended questions um mm-hmm. then that's going to help you really get a feel for how they feel about vback how they treat vback clients how they and how supportive they truly are so mm-hmm. instead of saying i want a vback is is that okay? You can say, how do you feel about VBAC? How do you treat, um, how do you treat VBAC parents differently than you would treat parents without a prior cesarean? Um, how do you feel about inducing VBAC? Because that's a really big controversial subject as well. (laughs) Not con, yeah, controversial and like many, many, many opinions, um, about it. Um, and things like that will, will get them talking and getting right. them talking. It does a couple things for you. It helps you like facilitate and control the discussion. And it allows you to get a, a feel for like their back vibe. And if it's, is it really in line with the type of provider that you're looking for? Right. So asking open-ended questions like that. And if you can do it in their office, across from their desk, like fully dressed right. because that like puts a lot of power back in your court because like in, in the exam room in the gown um sitting on the table with the doctor in his lab coat or whatever like that puts him in a position of authority Absolutely. but sitting across the desk you feel more comfortable talking. To them, like they are your equal, and that's what they are. I mean, mm-hmm. some providers won't do that, but most providers will um, do give you like a consultation or, or right. go over your case or review with you. Um, so, yeah, that would be the biggest thing. The biggest like warning signs to look for is the more rules they have for VBAC just means generally like the less supportive they are. Yeah, so if they want I you agree. to go, like if they want you to say. Uh, or if they tell you, well, yeah, you can totally be back, but um you've got to go in labor before forty weeks, mm-hmm. and we don't induce feedback. So if you don't go into labor by forty weeks, it's definitely gonna be a repeat cesarean. Mm-hmm. and it's as long as your baby's not too big because you know, last time we had an eight and a half pounder, so your right. baby could be ten pounds this time, and your pelvis might be a little small. you know you're you're from a pe- petite family. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, things like that are kind of red flags. Um, but if they just say, you know, we're just going to want to make sure, um, that you have continuous monitoring and labor, because we want to see if baby's heart is doing okay. And just cause that's one of the first signs of rupture. Yeah. Um, and, and they treat you more like any other birthing parent, then yeah. that's going to be a sign that your provider is more supportive.
3: Love it. Love it. As you were talking about that, I'm thinking about like a pyramid shape of you talking to your provider. And like, as they're saying these things, it's getting like closer and closer to the tip of it. <laughs> like where they're like, we're narrowing out, we're narrowing the patients that we see that actually are successful with VBACs because we're saying you can't go into labor, you know, we no, no after 40 weeks, no inducing labor. You know, if you have a small bit, it's like, we're taking out so many women. It's like these. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You wonder why your, yes. your VBAC rate is so small. You take out all of these fact, these women it, exactly. here. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, great. No, great answer to that. I, I think that's so helpful to so many people interested. So all right, this next one is, this This probably will be a long question, but um, I wanted to know from you guys, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you guys hear out there about having a VBAC? Oh my goodness!
2: We could talk. <laughs> I know I hear a lot, but I want
3: to hear about you guys—some of the biggest ones. Go
2: ahead, Megan.
1: Um, well, big baby is yeah. definitely one of the one of the top. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's so many things where on the forums where we're seeing like, oh, my doctor ordered a growth ultrasound at 38 weeks. And my baby's measuring eight pounds, so they're saying I need a C-section. And it's Ugh. like, why are we doing a random girl total sound at 38 weeks for no reason? Yeah. Yeah. And eight pounds, it's really not that big. <laughs>
3: I know. Really I'm just not. doing like hand palm emoji like on my
4: face like, right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: big, Big babies are delivered out of vaginas all the time. And Absolutely. so – um that, like a big baby, I can't do it. Um, I've seen things, I mean, even to the point where it's like, oh, your group B strep, your GBS positive. What? So
3: you can't, yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It's crazy. But um obviously, um, oh, you you didn't get a baby out last time, your failure to descend. Yeah, so yeah. you're probably not gonna do it this time. Your body didn't dilate last time, it won't dilate this time. Yeah. Um, those types of things, water's being ruptured for more than 18 hours, like yeah. have to go in for a C-section. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. I mean, there's so, so many. many,
3: so many, yeah. which ones
2: do you want to add? Um, okay. So first of all, we actually have a free download on our website. Um, Ooh. five called, um, VBAC Mythbusters. Cool. So there's five. Um, common myths about VBAC with the resources to uh, um, back them up and bust them open. And mm-hmm. I would say, like, one thing Megan didn't mention is once a cesarean, always a cesarean. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, of course, um, completely. I fall- actually had that conversation with the bank teller the other day.
1: What? And she was like, she was like, <laughs> my sisters had eight C-sections. I was like, oh my gosh. Wow. She was like, I didn't. She's like, I didn't know that was a thing because random story off tangent. My purse got stolen and our business card card got stolen. She's like, what does BBAC mean? And so that's how we got it. That's exactly her sister who has never given the options. And so she's had eight cesareans.
2: Yeah. So once a cesarean, always a cesarean was actually used in the early 1900s, um, in an article in the New York time, New York medical journal. Um, and Keep in mind, like in the early 1900s, they were still doing classical incisions, which is like through the top of your tummy. Right. Um. It there was like blood typing hadn't really become a common thing yet, so blood transfusions weren't as available. Antibiotics weren't um, invented yet. I don't even think in the early. And they <laughs> yeah. did, And if they were, then they were not um, readily accessible. Same thing with anesthesia. Um. Sanitary conditions were so much worse. So like, right. people. Didn't do cesareans unless they were absolutely necessary, and those that had cesareans probably did so because they because of um, like disease like rickets where yeah they have like huge deficiencies and their bones grow deformed or whatever like in extreme cases like that, and so we're still using that incredibly outdated phrase wow. now. Yeah. And um it's totally a myth. Um V is a very safe and reasonable option for most women. Um I I can't remember what I talked about in this episode and what we just talked about <laughs> in our episode. But um the American Pregnancy Association yeah. actually says that um 90% of women with a previous cesarean are good candidates for a VBAC, but yeah. only 10% of those will try. Which but 80% or more will be successful. And I don't like to use the term success or failure um, related to birth, but like in this circumstance, I think it's appropriate. Um, but, and, and some cases it's a little bit lower your chances and some are higher. And most of that depends on your provider, your hospital and your birth location. Um, because that plays a big impact on how you are treated for VBAC. Um, but yeah, I would say that that would be one of the biggest myths that VBAC after two or more cesareans is not mm-hmm. safe. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's a lot of data supporting that it is just as safe um, or there's a little bit more risk to it. Um, but even ACOG recommends VBAC after two cesareans as they a do. safe and reasonable yes. option. Yeah, and um, but it's hard because there's not a lot of data out there mm-hmm. because not a lot of women do it, and a lot of it is like retrospective data, so like looking back instead okay. of like doing a study where things are controlled and variables are accounted for. Um, so that's kind of tricky. I'm trying to I, think. I
3: think. Oh, go ahead. Uh, No, you're fine. I think um, I kind of compare it to like talking about feedback after twosis two C-sections um, and how it's just, uh, you know, we don't do it a whole lot. It's kind of how breach, vaginal breach deliveries have kind of gone out of like, we're just not doing that, those a whole mm-hmm. lot because we're just, we, we're not educated on them, right? Like we're, we're just going away from them and like providers are going away from them because they're just not educated on them and they don't know how to handle them because they didn't see them, a lot of them in their trainings. And probably a lot of the, you know, that goes for VBACs after two two C-sections. They're just not seeing a whole lot of them. They don't know how to manage them properly and they, you know, they don't feel comfortable with them. So we're just kind of saying, oh, let's go, let's go for what we feel comfortable with, even though it's, it is a very safe option. You know, exactly. So that's just I what no I think people of. I <laughs> will say that. I
1: I just want to go with what I know. Right, right. Yes. Right. So because more. what we like, the unknown more. is
3: uncomfortable. <laughs> right. yes. Which I mean I understand. <laughs> like I just I understand that, right? I mean mm-hmm. that makes sense. But it's when it when it comes to these sorts of things, yeah. If we're ever gonna change the dialogue and change what's happening, we gotta go against what we what we feel comfortable with. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and I kind of want to go into your next question. Yeah, um, that says um, the my pelvis the is pelvis. too small. Yes, so that's uh, the because, next one.
3: <laughs> like, yeah, that's that kind of a big. That one, oh, that one is so big baby small uh, pelvis. I just if had, I had a dollar, I know. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to probably go say the same thing that you said. <laughs> um, but no, I was saying I just had somebody in my Facebook group today ask this question and just say, oh, I just, and you were talking about the growth ultrasound at 38 weeks with, you know, in the previous question, she was like, I just had an ultrasound and my baby's already measuring this way, you know, and they're saying that X, Y, Z, like I'm going to have a 15 pound baby. And I'm like, oh God, (laughs) tell somebody that, you know? Um, You're not going to
2: have a 15 pound baby, first of all.
3: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I would love for you to elaborate on that whole myth of like, my pelvis is too small or my baby is too big. Oh, it just breaks my heart every time I
2: hear somebody say, you know, when I tell them about the V back link and they're like, Oh, you know, they just sigh. Yeah. I wish I'm just I one could of those women that <laughs> whose pelvis is just too small to get a baby out. And, yes. yeah. and, and at that point, I'm just like, Oh, I am so sorry. How are you, how are you feeling about that? Because I don't want to like insert anything into their birth stories that they don't want inserted right. into them. But like, this is the thing about small pelvises. Well, there's a couple things. Um, (laughs) first of all, it is incredibly rare for, um, cephalopelvic disproportion or CPD, which is like the formal diagnosis. It's incredibly rare. Um, it usually happens in underdeveloped countries where women grow with, um, big nutritional deficiencies and their bones are deformed or they have some kind of disease like rickets, um, Mm -hmm. or there's a traumatic injury to the pelvic area. So, um, that would be the most common, um, situations that would cause somebody to have true cephalopelvic disproportion. Um, but, and there's not really a good way to tell, especially during pregnancy, right. what size the pelvis really is. I mean, like you can only do so much with a cervical check and even during surgery. Um, yeah. but the other thing is that there is no way at all to measure how much the pelvis is going to flex and open during labor because your body is a wonderful thing. It produces a hormone called relaxin. That um, is why you waddle at the end of pregnancy and why you're more clumsy because it's relaxing everything and your pelvis opens and it flexes and your baby's head molds and squeezes together. And there's no way to accurately measure that and how much a one particular person's body is going to do those things. So, um, the biggest thing, I mean, there are things that are going to make it harder for a baby that is larger to come out of a pelvis that is smaller, Mm -hmm. um, like being flat on your back and getting the epidural when you're four centimeters dilated and maybe being induced before your body's ready or if your baby's head or body is in a, in an awkward position, Mm -hmm. um, those things we'll make it harder. But, um, I just ha- had a birth in as a doula in, um, September where this petite mom, five foot, two inches tall, um, gave birth to a 10 pound, nine ounce baby at home.
3: Yeah. There you go. And it happens. <laughs>
2: do you know what she did? She didn't hold still. I should say what she did not do. She was moving the whole time and she was frustrated because she couldn't get in a comfortable laboring position. And she thought that like, she, something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And, um, but no, nothing was wrong. She just, her body just needed to keep moving to wiggle that baby out. So, um, big baby, small pelvis is often used. Um, when I think to discourage women from trying, but also I think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about that and the physiological process. And sometimes, um, you just, there is no reason. And so you have to create a reason. Right. And so, yeah. No, stepping off soapbox. No,
3: that's great. No, that's <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect answer to that question. And I think that hopefully can dispel a lot of kind of myths surrounding that subject because, yeah. As you guys know, as I know, we, we see those comments all the time about ultras. I mean, really, sh- sh- at the end of the day, <laughs> ultrasounds aren't even that accurate. First Mm -hmm. of all, and and determining how big your baby's going to be, okay? There's a big wide range there. If they say your baby's ten pounds, it you know there's a plus and minus, right? They say your baby's six pounds, there's a plus and minus, right? So ultrasounds are not super accurate. They're great at doing other things, but they're not great at detecting how big your baby is actually going to be. And yeah, as you said, there's true CPD is so 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 rare and people don't realize that. And people and providers label it just as that, as an easy way to say, oh, I don't really know what happened, but probably your baby was just too big for your pelvis. So
2: I, I have some data. Great. If oh, you Oh, go ahead. Data. I love data. There's a, <laughs> there a retrospective study. So it's like looking back at data, yeah. um, of a large group of women whose babies were suspected to be big mm-hmm. and, um, so these are women that were told their babies were going to be large, like macrosomic, over nine and a half pounds. Before their babies were born, they were told that. Yeah. And the average size of the babies in that particular group of people was seven pounds three ounces, just
4: which, like is which is
2: not big. Yeah. <laughs> but oh. the other thing is the other percentage or statistic I wanted to sh- to shout out real fast is if your provider thinks your baby is big your chances of having a cesarean go up by 30%.
3: Oh, oh, 100%. And I believe that. And it might even be be more than that, really. It might, you yes, know? <laughs> it might even be more than that. Yeah. No, that's yeah. that's so true. Yeah. And I think it's just it's just putting one more doubt in your mind, you know, mm-hmm. while you're laboring, like, oh, am I really going to be able to, like, I'm really excited to go into labor, but I did have this provider tell me that my baby's going to be really big. So I'm really concerned about that. And then blah, 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 blah. We never even addressed it, and we just said, Hey, you grew your baby as big as you know, as big as it would come out, and it's gonna come out, and let's just go for it and let's labor instead of this whole like, oh, we did an ultrasound at 39 weeks, and this baby's gonna be really big. We gotta prepare just say for no really big- to late yeah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Just say laughs> unless no. there's a true medical of course,
2: need, of course, and unless- of course, we want to add that, like. Um, gestation, uncontrolled gestational diabetes yes. can create um, really larger babies, especially in the shoulder area and the abdomen area. Yes. So you want to be careful with unmanaged diabetes, gestational diabetes. Unmanaged.
3: That is the unmanaged
2: yes. part. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, unmanaged. exactly. <laughs>
3: yeah. No. And I think, I mean, and there's a few, like I know I can think of uh, um, a patient population that I think sometimes people don't think about that, that raises risks of not only being not successful in feedback, but just uh, birth issues, <laughs> labor issues in general, are people who have undergone um, IVF or, you know, uh, I, not, not even IUI, but, but just IVF mainly, if it's not like, sometimes, I've seen more complications associated with those type of patients. So I kind of take a little bit more caution with them, but they absolutely can have, you know, perfectly healthy vaginal deliveries. But yeah, man, like if you're low risk and you're healthy and you're, oh gosh, your pelvis is not too small, <laughs> yes. unless you have, yeah, like you said, Say unless it you have. for the you, people in the back. <laughs> unless you've ha- you've been in a severe car accident and you yes. got your pelvis smashed, or you know, yeah, you do have rickets, which is extremely, extremely rare. rare yeah your pelvis isn't too small. So, all right, let's go on to the next one. Cause the next one is another one of those myths that I want you guys to, um, kind of, you know, talk a little bit more about. Um, so this next one is the failure to progress label. Okay. So I want to hear from you guys, if you guys can talk about the, that label failure to progress and kind of why, why you think it gets labeled so frequently.
1: Patience. Yeah. Is that like, (laughs) I just feel like there's a lack of patience Yes, in a lot of areas. Um, and I mean, really though, think of it from a provider standpoint, you guys, they're exhausted. Yeah. They're yeah. so mm-hmm. tired. They do a lot. They really do. And they're their cortisol levels are
2: probably all over the
1: place. <laughs> and honestly, like they're underappreciated in a lot of ways, in my yeah.
3: opinion. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, and so when you have a mom... That's kind of hanging out, not going real fast, not, you know, and you're exhausted and you're like looking at the clock and you're like, yeah, this baby's probably been born at 5 Mm a.m. But if we could have this baby be born sooner, then they start pushing interventions, right? Right, And sometimes the body's not ready to receive those interventions. Sometimes Pitocin is received really well and the body's fine. And sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's not the body. It's the baby. The baby's overwhelmed. But, um, failure to progress, you know, I think there's a lot to go into it. I think a lot of it is actually the position of the baby. Yeah. That's actually in the pelvis, like mm-hmm. where that baby is. And unfortunately these days, um, we're not talking about it and we're not thinking about that as often as doulas, and I'm sure as labor and delivery nurses, like we're really trying to encourage this baby in a good position to apply really well to the cervix. So we have a great dilation. Um, But a lot of the times I think we're rushing into things. We're we're breaking water too early with babies that are too high. They're coming down wonky Mm -hmm. and it's a slow progression. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like patience is one of the, biggest factors in failure to progress. I I truly believe that women's bodies, um, and breathing people are meant to progress. Yeah. Agreed. (laughs) Um, and I think that time is such, such a huge key into labor because not all labors are 12 hours long. Um, you know, I think truly with my, with my VBAC baby that, you know, it was 42 hours. It was long. Yeah. Um, and, I believe that it would probably have ended up in a cesarean if I were in a different place and had 100%. a
3: hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And my, and my waters were ruptured for longer than a more comfortable right. number of time in a hospital. Um, And so anyway, I just feel like I would have ended in a cesarean and uh, you know, with my first two, you know, after 12 hours, I was at three centimeters. Right. Like, my water broke spontaneously. I went in, I was a one, you know, I, I was progressing slowly and I feel like it was more like failure to wait versus failure to progress. I believe that my body just needed time. Yeah. Um, so that's my take on failure to progress. I think it's a lot of the time that we, we don't really wait and trust labor and there's a lot to do with the baby's positions that we're not paying attention to.
3: Yeah, and well, I think no, go ahead Julie. I was just going to comment on spinning babies and throwing spinning babies y- yes. in there. Yes. <laughs>
4: and, and how babies they, is a great resource. Yes.
3: They're amazing. And how they talk about it is baby's position but more so even um the space in mom's pelvis and if we can make more space for baby, baby can yes. get in a good position. So We actually yes. teach about
2: that in our courses yes. and Love how to create more room in the pelvis. More space. Yes, for baby and um, balance. Yes.
1: Balance. Yep, like if we're off balance, and if baby's off balance, it's not going to equally distribute the right pressure yes. in the pelvis and in the in the cervix. Yes,
2: yep, so we've got we've got to balance
1: these, and we've got to balance these babies before we even go into labor.
3: Yeah, yep. You know what I mean?
2: Um, what I was going to add is, I think that failure to progress is misdiagnosed very frequently. Yes, um, ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine have guidelines for what failure to progress is. Mm-hmm. And that it um, it's no change in cervical, no cervical change at all in six or more hours. Now, cervical change doesn't mean just dilation. I want to elaborate a little more on that. So first right. of all, your waters have to have been ruptured, whether artificially or spontaneously. It doesn't matter, um, but your waters have to have broken, and there's no cervical change in six hours. And cervical change counts: dilation, effacement, softening the the cervix moving forward, um, the pelt, um, the baby even descending counts a cervical change in six hours, and you have to be at least six centimeters dilated. So, once from six to ten centimeters, and no cervical change, and your water broken, that's where failure to progress. Can be called there's no time limit in the pushing stage, so after once you get to pushing you're not failure to progress anymore. Right. it would be a failure to descend right. um, if the the baby's not just coming down because your body's already fully progressed to right. complete and then um, before six centimeters it's um, technically not failure to progress, and so those guidelines. Um, most people don't follow them. I was called failure to progress at four centimeters. Megan was called failure to progress at two. And was it two and three or one and two? It was one and three. One and three. And so while, like I said, I don't think that these providers are intentionally like saying, oh, well, I'm just going to write down failure to progress, even though she wasn't six centimeters. I think that there just, there needs to be a reason and they have, Mm -hmm. they have to have a reason. And sometimes there isn't a clear reason. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, going back to the first part of the episode, getting your operative report is so important because if failure to progress is written in your operative report, you're going to want to know that so that you can like really know the situation. And if it was called, and sometimes they call it before um, the six hour time limit a Mm -hmm. lot they call oh. it before the six hour time limit. Oh, and so all the time. being aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I think I was called failure to progress after three hours and yeah. I was only four centimeters and, um, but, but my cervix hadn't dilated anymore. I have right. no idea what it was doing in any other way because right. there was no notes of it anywhere.
3: Right. And so
2: it's just See, kind and of, I tricky. was, I was changing.
1: Yep. I just wasn't changing dilation. I was facing.
3: Yeah.
1: So it's just interesting, you know, and it is interesting. Had so it's interesting, awesome. so tell me that. I had OBs in my interviewing process cuz like Julie mentioned earlier, it was a lengthy process. I started before I was even pregnant. Mm-hmm. But I had many OBs say you were never given a chance you were never in mm-hmm. labor.
2: Like they all said that to me. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. I yeah, mean, one in right. three
3: centimeters. Jeez.
2: Like that's. But then they also told her that she would never get a baby out. Yeah. What? Some, some <laughs> providers
1: did. Yeah. yeah. Some providers said, yeah, I agree. I don't think you'd ever get a baby out of your pelvis oh. just by looking at me. Like they like did the scan with their eyes, you know?
4: <laughs> yeah. Which
3: like how just crappy. Super that. accurate. <laughs> yeah, and Super how, yeah accurate. <laughs> not ina- not accurate at all. Yeah. It's inaccurate. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm trying to think. I was just when you were talking about the six centimeter thing. I'm trying to think of so of there are so many cases. Six centimeters and the six hour thing of when, yeah, mom was effacing, but maybe not dilating. And so, you know, the yeah. provider called it, uh, called it earlier than that six-hour mark. And I'm also thinking of Maybe it's the patient too, just not knowing that, hey, labor takes a really, really long time and it is okay if you're kind of stuck at the same amount of centimeters, if you're stuck at, you know, six centimeters, uh, 80% of face for four hours, and then you start making progress. Cause I think we've been kind of, uh we're more apt to think that like things are, you, cause you hear about. Fast labors, you know that it's just going to keep going, and one centimeter an hour is the no, you know, like all of mm-hmm. these like thrown around things. So, if you're just kind of stuck at somewhere for four, three or four hours, you're like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me. When in fact, right. that, this is well within the range, well within the range of, well the range of, of normal. Problems, so,
2: well, and uh-huh. telling someone that they're not progressing fast enough doesn't it help them. <laughs> doesn't make them feel right. good, and it increases right. their stress levels, which. It decreases their oxytocin levels. And so, like, because the cortisol and oxytocin hormones, cortisol is a stress hormone, they compete with each other. They cannot both exist at high levels in your body. And so, when you have high stress, your body's natural production of oxytocin drops, which can slow down your labor, which can cause them to want to jumpstart it to make it move even faster. And then they give you pitocin which is artificial oxytocin, um, to speed things up and then you're still stressed out. And so your body is more difficult for it to work. And then all of a sudden you're being wheeled in the OR for a cesarean, um, because your body just didn't dilate when had the circumstances been different or someone spoke to you using different words, then who, who knows what might have gone differently.
3: Right. Yeah, no, so so important, and so yeah. yeah, so many factors go into play. It's hot. It's, it's tough.
4: It All is right. tough. Yeah, <laughs> you know. All right,
3: let's go on to this next question. This next one is just kind of about epidurals and regarding, um, VBACs. Mm-hmm. So I personally have my own beliefs about epidurals and kind of the relationship between C sections and VBACs and whether or not you should get an epidural if you have a VBAC. So. I want to kind of know where you guys stand on this and what you recommend or if you recommend anything or if, you know, kind of where, where you stand on that.
1: Right. Okay. So are you, you're saying like, do we recommend epidurals? Do we not um, recommend so it? I
3: just want to know, so I'll tell you what my, epi- my beliefs are first and then we'll, and then I guess that will kind of lead, lead you guys into, okay. Into okay. talking more about it. So I think it's, you know, if you're the kind of, this is what I say in my courses, if you're the kind of person, I always recommend my natural course for, if you're interested getting a VBAC, I always recommend my natural course, because personally, I think the less intervention, the better when it comes to trying to VBAC. So if you are at all interested in trying to go without an epidural, you should, you know, become more educated in that. But if you are the kind of person that says, "Hey, you know what? I, I, I don't even. I'm not even interested in, you know, having a, a soup, You know, going natural. I, I, I'm gung ho epidural. That's okay. Um, and you can still do education. And you, a VBAC is certainly still possible. But I think there is a false like there. I mean, there have been studies that have come out and said. Well, there have been conflicting studies, but there have been studies that have come out and said that there's, you know, there's no, no relation between epidurals and C-sections, right? Um, But like, I'm trying to, I'm just, I'm trying to think of all of the patients that I've taken care of that have ended up in an, in a C-section, like an un, you know, an unplanned C-section, right? They Mm -hmm. are a failure for breast, or, you know, whatever. And so many times it's like, it's a crazy long induction, like they came in to be induced and there's Pitocin involved or, and they have an epidural at some point. Uh, there's like, I can count almost on my hand the amount of moms that I've come in who have unplanned C-sections who are like trying to just go a hundred percent, no epidur- you know, no epidural, no Pitocin, no, you know, as few interventions as possible and they are unsuccessful and they, you know, and they have a C-section. So that's kind of how I feel that kind of taking as many, cause, cause maybe some of those factors were a part in why you had your first C-section. We don't know, but if we can kind of eliminate these things, um, me personally, I think it's going to be in your best interest. I get the whole safeguard of, mom wanting to have an epidural in place if in case she has to have a C-section but then I have opinions about that too so Oh we do too. <laughs> <laughs> so like I just wanted to hear kind of what you guys think about think about epidurals and C-sections and VBacs and kind of what what you tell moms who are who are wondering about the same sorts of things.
1: Right. You know, I think epidurals um I think, I think two things about epidurals. One, I think that obviously it, it's an epidural. And so people say walking epidural, you can't really walk around with epidural. You just can't. You can move your legs sometimes. And these days, epidurals have come a long ways. When yes. I was, when I had an epidural, I literally was a dead fish. I was having babies. <laughs> my leg was falling off of the bed and it yeah. was pulling my upper body. And I was like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, like I'm going to fall off the bed. And my husband was asleep and was like, Oh my gosh, Oh my gosh. Like ran over and like helped me up, back up on the bed. Cause my yeah. leg, I didn't even know all yeah. of a sudden I knew my body was pulling me away. But, um, so I think that obviously avoiding an epidural, as long as you, possibly can to encourage movement and, and just more dramatic movement, I should say, Mm -hmm. because you can still move with an epidural. So I don't want to make it sound like you can't more dramatic movement, um, getting up, using the bathroom, going, sitting on that toilet, because that toilet's a really happy place, um, uses gravity. It centralizes things. just, it's really awesome. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, I also think an epidural can be one of the best tools in our back. Yes. Um, and I don't mean us are as in the doulas as are as in the birthing parent. Right. Um, it can be one of the best tools because sometimes, like you said, long inductions or, or maybe we've had this OP baby or an asyncliff baby, and we've had coupling contractions that are nonstop Mm -hmm. that can help us relax and rest and let our body do
2: its job.
3: Right.
2: I've seen it both ways. You know, um, I remember my very first cesarean client as a doula. Um, she went in at two in the morning. She had had prodromal labor for a little while. Um, she was tired. She didn't call me. Um, she went in, she was two centimeters dilated flat on the bed the whole time. And I didn't even know she, and she had gotten epidural before, like right as soon as she was admitted, and she wasn't really even contracting, and mm-hmm. then they started betocin, and then you know lo and behold, her cervix started swelling, and and she ended up with a cesarean, and so I think that it can increase your chances of having a C-section mm-hmm. if you don't use it wisely, mm-hmm. um, if you are um, not, I mean do you know what? A lot of people just don't even know that they educate to educate themselves about epidurals because epidurals has lots of side effects and lots of things could go wrong, but like, not that they always go wrong. Most of the time it works pretty well. Um, but knowing what to watch for and knowing what, what things you can do to move and encourage your baby to help descend, um, because there's so many things you can still do with an epidural, but timing it right, going as long as possible without getting one or just ditching it completely are all really good ways to let you um, be more in tune with your body and let your body intuitively move in the ways it needs to for the baby to come out. With that being said, I too have seen clients where it's just a really, really long labor. And um there has been no cervical dilation change in a, mm-hmm. in a while and they're exhausted because their body is working really hard usually just to kind of correct the baby's position mm-hmm. um and then they get the epidural and they take a 45 minute nap and the baby comes out you know right. and and so i think i exactly what megan says it can be a very useful tool to have in the bag um but don't do, If you want the epidural, that's great. You should definitely get it. Don't feel pressured for it though, too. Yeah. Don't feel pressured for it. Don't feel like you have to get it, Um, but, and don't, but don't rush in and get the epidural as soon as you have your first contraction, you know, it's such a balance, but yes, I I agree too early of an epidural and, and mom's not knowing how to labor with an epidural um, definitely will increase your chances of having a cesarean.
1: Also, I want to point out that I have heard um, birthing parents say, I totally want to be back, but there's no way I could go unmedicated. And I really want to point out that you don't have to go unmedicated to to have a vaginal birth. Like if that was the case, then wow, like we would have, like everyone would be going unmedicated, right? Right. First time, second time, third time moms, because it's, it's possible. Yes. Obviously the more you can move and do things like your chances are higher, um, of, because you can move and you can groove this baby down. But, um, yeah, you do not have to go unmedicated. Um, and also something else that I want to point out too is if there's a point in your labor where it is just terrible, it is terrible. You're so tired. You're in so Mm -hmm. much pain, whatever it may be in my opinion, as a doula, it is better to be in a very clear headspace and be able to look back at your delivery and say, I remember it. I was Mm -hmm. present and it was a positive experience versus that was total (laughs) like H E L P H double hockey sticks. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and and I hated that, and it was miserable. But yay, at least I got my V back. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you're happy you got your vaginal birth, but you don't look at your experience as a positive one. Mm-hmm. And if that epidural is going to help you have that positive experience, go
3: for it. Do it. Well, very well said. Very well okay. said. I love and it. And we
2: actually teach epidural labor positions in our
3: courses
2: or cool. online and in-person yes, courses. Yes, we do. Too. Yes. Because, yeah. That's a common, I guess that's another common myth is that you have to go and medicated to have a feedback, which is ah, absolutely yes. not true. We
3: can certainly exactly. add that to the long list yes. that we just, <laughs> yeah. So in, so many. <laughs> in a previous question. Yeah, no, I love that because there is, um, there are so many positions that you can do with epidurals. A lot of people yeah. think that it's like, you would just have to be on your back. No, we can do lots of lying positions. You can mm-hmm. get on your hands and knees. On,
2: sit up and do like the queen's throne. Yes.
3: Yeah. And I just had somebody comment the other day on one of my posts that said, um, my nurse didn't let me get on my hands and knees. Like when when I, like she said, I couldn't she get on my badass, hands and knees. Probably. That's what yeah. I said. I was like, there is no, the, I, I'm trying to think, I think there was maybe one patient that I had that her legs were so dead and she was very, very overweight and she just couldn't hold herself up. And she could like, it just, it was not physically, she might've even had multiple, like, it was just like, she we, like it took four of us and like, she just couldn't hold herself there. Yeah,
4: But at least yeah. we could
3: try and get them in the position. Like it's not that is completely false. Like you can definitely do hands and knees and do many, many, many of the same positions that you can do, um, without an epidural with an epidural. So I love that you guys mentioned that that you do have that in your course. And we'll certainly, we'll, we'll, I'll let you talk more about your course at the end too, but we'll certainly link all your stuff and you know, where we can find your course at the, in the show notes page as well. So, all right, cool. Well, we have just a couple more questions. Um, The next one is just what are kind of some of the differences in if somebody's preparing for a VBAC versus if they're just kind of preparing for, you know, if they've never had a, had a C-section before, what, what I go, and I guess, what are the best kind of tips in preparing your body to have a VBAC?
1: You know, I think, I think there's not a lot of difference. I think that every, every mom, every mom that's having a baby should prepare the same. Yeah. Like really, um, I really believe that I believe they should all find a supportive provider that's in line with their birthing desires. They should all find a doula. Yes. we like yeah. doulas. <laughs> yes,
2: they should all see a chiropractor. Do
3: you, you do you like
2: doulas? <laughs> <laughs> do you really make it? I know, right?
1: I, I know. don't know <laughs> how to
3: think about <laughs> oh, that <sure>. one. <laughs>
1: no, I think it's so important. I think, um, the difference when it comes to vaginal birth after cesarean versus yeah. just a mom who's never had a baby before
3: yeah.
1: um is that you get more flack yeah you get more flack mm-hmm. and you need to prepare and i kind of talked about it earlier armoring up but you need mm-hmm. to prepare to receive that flack and if you have that education which you should no matter what even for first second time moms any mom going into a labor experience or any any birthing person should have the education no matter what. Yeah. But yep. for, for vaginal moms after cesarean, it's so important for these birthing people to know what they're up against.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, that's important that, it, like you said, it, there, there's going to be some flack, there's going to be some pushback and kind of what to do in case that happens and that it's okay. You know, it's okay to, to speak up for yourself. So
2: no, yeah. I love that. I love And just, that. I think there may be a little, little bit more education required. Yes.
3: Right. Yes. To, back. to get that armor. That,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yep. I love it. Well, awesome. Well, that was short and sweet. The last one is just, um, what are some of the best resources? Okay. To check out. And I know, and you guys can talk about you guys, cause you guys are my best, one of my best resources that oh, I tell people about. <laughs> so <laughs>
4: So yeah, what are some of the
3: best, yeah, what are some of the best resources that you would say, or do you guys have like a like a page that people can go to, to check out some of the best resources or just books or, you know, podcasts or anything. So Oh my listening. gosh, <laughs> we have
2: a whole list. And Yay. obviously, um, we'll just start with us because we were the VBAC link. We have a blog, we have a podcast, we have a database of back trained doulas. We have, um, how to VBAC is what we call our VBAC yeah. parents prep course. Um, we have a birth workers, um, advanced doula certification course, we have um, downloadable free content for you, we have a podcast, did I say that already? Um, You can find all of that on our website at thevbacklink.com. But there are other amazing resources out there and we, the more resources you have access to, the better off you're going to be, um, definitely connect with Mm ICANN. ICANN is the International Cesarean Awareness Network. They have like local chapters where you can go and meet up with people. Um, they're very pro VBAC, but they're also pro like choosing what type of birth you want. And if it's Mm -hmm. a cesarean, how to make that, um, an optimal experience for you. Um, and then also VBAC Facts is another good resource. We, Megan and I, um, use VBAC Facts um, when we were preparing for our babies as well, cool. um, there's our Facebook group is a really good one. The VBAC link community. Um, if you want to connect with other like-minded people, there is a Facebook group out there, um, for VBAC, uh, that is not very supportive. Um, even oh. though their title, um, comes across as supportive, both Megan and I have been, um, attacked personally and professionally in that oh. group. And kicked out, and it's you can it, feel
3: free to say that group too. It's um, okay. We want people to steer away from mm-hmm, negativity. Yeah. So tell us what group you're talking about. It's the birth <laughs> after cesarean evidence based
2: support group. Okay, some, some similar something like that. that. Is
3: it like a very large group or something? Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay, so of, like, of course. You know how, That's always I'm, how it is. <laughs> like yeah. Like the first I'm so thing
2: that pops up <laughs> by how many people mess me and said, Ugh. I'm so sorry for how they treated you in that group. I just stay in there so I can protect the people in my community. Jeez. And like, that's why we were in there too, is just to like be quiet yeah. and yeah. Not, 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 do anything, but just to like observe yeah. and make sure that if there was any of our people in our local, either our local community or our, our VBAC community um, that received that harassment. I mean you can't I really hate using the word bullying and harassment yeah. and I don't use it very often, but that group is very, very much mm. like that. Um, oh, yeah, I actually haven't been in
1: it since I had my um son yeah. because I, I couldn't I couldn't do it. But so that's no. one of the reasons why we created um <laughs> our, group. our group is because we wanted people, no matter what their decision was to feel supported and loved, and to get really good information because, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of false information out there, which is so great. Why we have us and VBAC facts and evidence-based birth, Um, Yes, another good resource. Yes. Yes. And And I can, and, um, and so, yeah.
2: And if you're a book person, um, a lot of times, um, cesareans are unplanned and um there's a really good book called How to Heal a Bad Birth. It's Aww. written by a couple midwives from Canada. It is phenomenal for processing through birth trauma or any
3: right
2: now. So <laughs> no, you need to get a copy because it goes through like everything and I know that like birth trauma and postpartum mood disorders, we don't talk about those enough, but that goes that book goes into everything like what to do if I felt fine about my experience and my partner has birth trauma. What to do if I'm mad at my partner for not realizing how traumatic it was to me? What to do if I'm mad at my baby because of how things ended up? What to do if I feel like, I mean, there's just like, so many things that you never even knew, but then you read that book and you're like, oh my gosh, that describes, that's exactly what I was feeling. And so we definitely recommend that as well, that book, um, how to heal a bad birth. And, um, I mean, there's just really good resources out there. Those are some really good ones. Cool. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Podcasts.
2: We've got the birth hour, birth geek, Oh, um, Birthful is a good birthful. one too. Well, yours, mm-hmm. obviously. We mm-hmm. love you and your content <laughs> and your blog and your beautiful Instagram pictures. <laughs> Thanks.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's great too. And I love that book that you mentioned. I I've wrote that down. I'm going to get that. Yeah, that on Amazon was like, get off with you so I can read that. Because I've been looking for some good books to read lately. Um, but I love that. And I think that just says so much about how your birth experience kind of goes into your whole life, you know, how it affects your whole motherhood and Mm -hmm. and everything. And if you have a traumatic experience, whether it was this happened or whether it was that happened, it can affect you so, so much. And here's, you know, here are the tools that you can do to, to help out, you know, to help, to help things. Um, Yeah. Birth trauma. I mean, that's, that's one of my, one of my main reasons too, that I started this whole online space is because I see these traumatic births happen to people. And I don't wish that on my worst enemy, you know, it, cause it's so ugh, like, I just, I just want to give these girls a hug, you know, <laughs> like, ugh, yes. like I just, it, it affects people so deeply. And yeah, anybody listening who has been through birth trauma. Yeah. One of the, like the first things, obviously definitely check out this book. This sounds like a wonderful book, but one of the first things I usually tell people to do too, is to find a, um, trauma-informed therapist. Like there's a lot of good therapists yes. out there, but you need a trauma informed therapist because this is truly trauma that you went through and you need to treat it like trauma. So I love to say that even if you think like, oh, I'm not, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't want to go to therapy. A even if even if you go just a few times you know you, that can make the world a
2: difference. dude everybody oh. could use therapy i don't uh,
3: care yeah. who you are i just ha- when <laughs> i everybody. i just went to therapy today yes. <laughs> this morning yes. so yeah i i incorporated in, in my life um i see my therapist you know i have two therapists actually <laughs> i see them i see them both about once Uh, what you know once a month every two weeks or so just for maintenance and just for my own it life issues and it's made such a difference in my overall mental health and in just everything. Yes. But yeah, we all have something that we can tell a therapist. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> so, yep, agreed. I love that. Agreed. Well, awesome guys. Well, thank you so much. Can you just, I know, I know everybody who's listening knows where they can find you, but can you just say now at the end, kind of the best places where everybody can find you if they want to check, check out all your stuff that you got?
2: Yeah, we're on social media um Instagram and Facebook um at the vback link. Um we have a YouTube channel with all sorts of birth back birth birth back. What? All <laughs> sorts of birth videos on them especially cool. vback. Our podcast cool. also gets automatically published to YouTube. Cool. Um you can find our podcast and all the information we've talked about so far on the web on our podcast on our website um, at the vbacklink.com. Um And what am I forgetting? We have Pinterest, we tweet, like sometimes
3: mostly it's just reposting really? Instagram. I'm afraid of Twitter, Twitter. So I don't, have I there. kind of am too. So I usually just like <laughs> yeah, push the toggle button percent. on Instagram to be like because, gotcha.
2: tra- cause it validates you with Instagram. Uh, like the more accounts you have connected, uh, the more likely Instagram is to think you're real. Maybe I should real. tell
3: Jenna about that. Hmm. Okay. All right. <laughs> Instagram
2: doesn't think we're real yet. So we yeah. got to just do all the things. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Is that right, Megan? Um, and then our courses we have for parents and doulas, um, they go over every single thing you never know knew you needed to know about VBAC. We Love go over physical prep, mental preparation. Um, we go over the whole history of VBAC and cesarean, how to deal with providers in a bunch of different scenarios we go over special circumstances like women of color plus size feedback, yeah. the v-back calculator v-back after multiple cesareans we go like um how to v-back with an epidural yeah. um what happened like actually on your birthday when to go in what happens if your water breaks um before labor starts we go into postpartum recovery postpartum mood disorders on in to deal with before and after, you know, your VBAC. So there's just a whole bunch of information, um, in hours and hours of content and a perfectly packaged little, um, online course. And we're traveling the country. Woo. This year, we are going to be in Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, Southern Louisiana, and Miami, Florida, teaching parents and doula courses in person. Um, Ooh, Miami's so, a good one to go to because
3: they're very
2: Yes. There's <laughs> sections there. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, Florida is one of the worst um, states yeah. for cesareans overall. So we're really excited to do that. So if you're local to any of those areas, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website, vbacklink.com. So you get notifications when we're coming, um, coming to your area.
3: Awesome. Well, that's so great guys. Thank you so much. You both for being on here today. I think you've shared so much of your knowledge and I just, I would love to just have this as another hour we could talk, but I know people don't have another hour, but I love it. I know, I know, I know, (laughs) but I love it. Well, awesome guys. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Are you looking for birth education? Did you know that I have two fabulous birth courses that are super affordable? Well, I do. Head over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast to take a short quiz to see which birth class is for you. When you purchase either birth course, you'll have full access to it forever. And that means it will never expire and you can access it throughout any stage of your pregnancy or for any subsequent pregnancies that you have. You'll also gain free access to my Facebook group, linked to the class where you can ask questions about your pregnancy, share your birth story after you give birth, read other people's birth stories, and get to know other members who are in the course. There is also a money back guarantee, so if you are at all unsatisfied with your purchase, please, please send me an email at hello at mommylaborers.com for a full refund. There's really no risk to signing up, and I promise you will learn a ton about what's to come when you give birth. As a listener of this podcast, you automatically get 20% off any purchase if you use the code PODCASTLISTENER. I've had tons of moms just like you enter these birth courses and have fabulous, wonderful, empowering births because they feel so much more educated about what's to happen. So if you are at all curious about birth education, again, I encourage you to go to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast and use the code podcast Listener to save 20%. All right, so that is it for this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast. You probably follow me on Instagram because that's probably where you came from. But if you don't, head over to Instagram and follow me at mommy.labornurse for more. That is certainly where I am most active. I also now have a separate Instagram for just this podcast, so I encourage you to follow my second account at mommylabornurse.podcast as well if you want podcast updates. Again, that is at mommylabornurse.podcast. As always, you guys know that I also have a website where I have tons of articles, all about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding, newborn stuff, and more at www.mommylabornurse.com. I want to hear more from you on how much you love this episode of the podcast or how you think I can improve. So leave me a comment on one of my pictures, send me a DM, or send me an email with all the love. All right, guys, I will see you same time, same place next week.
0: Test, 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 test. Okay. Hey, guys, it's Liesl. I'm super excited about this. Hey, guys, it's me, Elmo. And Bert. And we're here to tell you about v What's a V-back, Bert? That's a good question, Ernie. Turn my headphones up. Uh, turn my headphones up. Hey, everyone, this is Liesl's... Blah, blah, blah. Hey everyone, this... (laughs) Hey guys, this is Lisa's husband, Barry. She ain't feeling well this week. She asked me to step in with my smooth, smooth voice. So sit back, put on a pair of good earphones and get a glass of wine and listen up.